Well, good morning. I'm Camper Monday, Associate Pastor, and I too would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. Uh, we're glad to have you here and am very excited to welcome back our William and Mary students. Uh, we got to welcome some of the newcomers last Sunday and now returning students, so we are so glad to have you back. Um, welcome. And I would let you know that you were well represented first service. I was surprised, but we actually did have one William and Mary student uh, in the first service. So um, anyway, but I'm glad to see the rest of you showing up for second service. So yes, we are back to our two-service schedule. Uh, hopefully you, you, you didn't miss, miss that and, um, and show up early, but if you did, you made it for adult ed. Or I'm sorry, that's our intergenerational education is what you would have uh, seen today. And we're, we're wrapping up a summer series in that intergenerational uh, summer education series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so it's been a, a great journey. Wrap that up today. Uh, have been focusing on God's law, uh, how to understand and apply uh, both law and gospel to our lives, how to live that out together before one another, growing in repentance and faith and obedience as we look to Jesus. And so I thought as we were wrapping up the, the summer education series that uh, by way of sermon, I would, I would go to one of the commandments uh, so today we're going to wrap up that summer series and consider the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So uh, a commandment, at uh, first glance, uh, not about being, uh, it's about not being dishonest. Or to look at it from a positive angle, uh, it's about truth-telling. And you see, we are all a people who struggle to tell the truth. All of us struggle to tell the truth. And, and we live in a, a culture that is constantly spinning and bending and breaking the truth. And, and it, as you know, uh, so much of the time we're even wondering, what is true? Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. And I hope that's not the case for us this morning. I hope that rather than hurry off, we will, we will stand, we will engage, we will be engaged by the truth of the gospel, uh, that we will pursue the truth before us. Again, our text is the ninth commandment. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at it from Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 2 and verse 16. It's found on page 61 if you're using the Pew Bible, Exodus chapter 20. But let's take a moment to pray before we hear God's word. We look to you this morning, uh, our good and gracious God, you who have spoken, you who have given your word to us, and by the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. And would you do that afresh this day? Would you speak the truth of your gospel deep into our hearts? And not only individually, but together as a body, corporately, would you do that great work of grace? Would you meet us now? Would you help us to hear, and in hearing to believe and to follow you? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now I invite you to hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2 and verse 16. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against 
your neighbor. This is the word of God. It is given to us for our good and for his glory. And so let's turn to it now. And as we turn to God's word and as we look specifically at this ninth commandment, I want us to consider three questions. Uh, What are we to do? Why should we do it? And how can we do it? So what, why, and how? What are we to do? Why should we do it? And how can we do it? So the first question, what are we commanded to do? Well, as I I was thinking about that question this week, I was reminded of a late 90s comedy uh, with Jim Carrey, Liar, Liar. Anyone seen that movie? Okay, good. You've got to be honest on this sermon. It's about not lying, right? Okay. So Jim Carrey is is playing a a fast-track lawyer who is always being dishonest with everyone, including his family, until one day his son has a birthday wish that comes true. And he wishes that his dad, Jim Carrey, cannot lie for 24 hours. And, of course, for this uh, fast-track lawyer, the, uh, the plot unfolds from there. Um, but as we, as we first look at this, we think that that's really all that it's about, not lying. You know, why couldn't we just summarize, why couldn't we just have before us, don't lie, you shall not lie. Because it, it does mean that, but it actually goes much deeper. Because there were plenty of moments in that movie when Jim Carrey was speaking the truth, but there was something wrong inside. Because you see, as we look at this commandment, and I want you to take a look for a moment at exactly what it says. It says, you shall not bear false witness. And that word false there, it's found here in Exodus 20, and then when we find the the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy 5, a similar word, yes, it means untrue. But more specifically, it means that which is vain or worthless. Okay, what am I trying to get at? Why am I pointing that out? Well, this is what, this is what I'm, I'm going for here. This commandment is not simply about factually inaccurate statements. Because we can be factually accurate and still mislead someone. I remember a few years ago, uh, Jennifer Allen and I were, were talking about this, this concept, and I, I remember uh, saying something to that effect about how we can uh, be factually accurate and still mislead someone, and, and Jennifer looked at me and she, she said, oh yes, Camper, that's, that's called manipulation. Us ladies, we know nothing about that. <laughs> okay, I'm quoting Jennifer, that doesn't come from me. Uh, and, and you know, here we are, a, a campaign year, so the political ads have begun, they're only going to intensify. Uh, TV, radio, and of course now bombarded on the internet as well. And think about all of the ads that take an opponent's statement out of context as a way to make the opponent look bad and the way to make themselves look good. Now, it's, it's easy to point a finger and say, oh yes, those, those politicians, but we do the same thing all the time. Uh, We do it at work, we do it in our home, uh, we do it at school, saying something that is factually accurate, but it's it's out of context, a way to to advantage ourselves, maybe by cutting someone else down, uh, a way to mislead others. It's just so easy to shade the truth. You know, and there are those moments when it, it just happens, like the words are out of your mouth and you're thinking, where did that come from? But I mean, it's out there and then you just move on. 
Uh, and we begin to try to justify it as, as if it, we, we chalk it up to a greater cause. And we rationalize in our hearts that we're not bearing false witness. You see, the issue here is deception. Because we can make factually accurate statements and still be deceptive. But there's more. Uh, one of the commentators who helped me put a lot of this together pointed out that sometimes we make factually accurate statements with no intent to deceive. Instead, with every intent to be accurate, but also to be hurtful, to harm another with the truth. In other words, truth without love. You know, so, so much of our confrontation looks like that. I mean, that's why so many of us avoid conflict like the plague. And I think about some of my worst moments as a husband are when I am more concerned about being right than I am about my relationship with Heather. And often in those times, I will speak a factually accurate statement, and there is no intent to deceive. The intent is to harm, to hurt, to cut down. In those moments, it is the cold, hard truth spoken from my lips, and it is coming from a cold, hard heart. And that's, that's not the gospel. That's breaking the ninth commandment. Because in that moment, that is truth without love. It is a vain, worthless witness against my wife, against my neighbor. A vain, worthless, false witness. So in the ninth commandment, we are called to avoid being that vain, worthless, false witness. To, to speak the truth. To live the truth. And from hearts that believe and are changed by the truth. And so that leads to the next question. Why? Why speak the truth to begin with? Well, take a look at the verse again. Verse 16, and if you look at verses uh, 13, 14, 15, you get the three prior commands, and they're just kind of bullet point real quick. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, period. No. There's a clause. It goes on, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A clarifying clause that, that reminds us that this command, that truth-telling, is about loving our neighbor. It's about loving one another. So you see, loving neighbor is to be the, the chief reason that we speak the truth. It's to be our chief motivation. Now, there are other reasons that we might tell the truth. But all those other reasons are grounded in selfishness. For example, sometimes there are moments where it is advantageous to me to tell the truth. But if my primary motive is to advantage myself, then when it is not to my advantage, I will most likely not tell the truth. I'll lie. So if, if, if my primary motive is anything other than love of God and love for neighbor, then I'm on the wrong road. I miss, I miss the point. I miss the command. When it's, no, when it's about me, it's not about love of God, love of neighbor, and then it's worthless. It's vain. 
In those instances, it may look good on the outside, but on the inside, it is hollow and empty. And I remember the first time that I experienced this. I was a small child, and it was Easter morning, and I came downstairs, and there was this big Easter basket. I was excited. It was full of eggs, but what I was most excited about was that huge chocolate bunny in the middle. You know, it's in a box. It's got the cellophane over the top. I mean, this huge honking chocolate bunny. And I opened up that thing, and I held it, and I was thinking, I am set for weeks. And I remember I asked my parents if I could take a bite, and they said yes, and I took a bite, and it just crumbled in my hands. On the outside, it looked good. On the inside, hollow and empty, it was a vain, worthless, (laughs) false witness against me. Still working through that today. Okay, but that's not the point. Um, Because you see, when we become so absorbed with just appearance, just, just looking good, our own self, what we end up doing is we withdraw from community. No matter how many people are around me, how many people, I know your name, you know my name, when I become so fixated on myself, I'm withdrawing, from, I'm withdrawing from you. I'm withdrawing from community. And, and in a, I'm, I'm really sentencing myself to solitary confinement. Now, do, do you know why solitary confinement is one of the most extreme punishments? It's because we were not created for isolation. We were created for community. And when there is not truth-telling, community begins to fall apart. One commentator said this, Human human community is destroyed, and individual people are destroyed when you don't tell the truth. It destroys relationship. You know, as a pastor, there are a lot of wonderful things that I get to see in people's lives. One of the more devastating things is when I see a a denial, a defiance to be honest, to speak truth, and how it undermines families, how it tears apart marriages, how it breaks friendships. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit more later as far as what truth-telling looks like. But destroying community. Okay, good picture of what that looks like. The reality TV show, Survivor. Okay, you may have never seen that show, but I know that you are aware of it because it's only been on for 24 seasons. I looked this up the other day. 334 episodes of Survivor. Okay, so I'm guessing that you know the basic premise. You get two teams, but are the people really on a team? No, because it's really each man or woman out for him or herself. So they're, they're pitted against each other, and I realize this is a game show, but it's a, great, it's a great commentary on culture and what happens when the key strategy to survival is deception. Because you watch people sometimes being factually accurate but misleading, doing everything to advantage themselves and, and cut other people down. Now, if we were to take this reality show to the extreme... This is what it would look like, because I think you're, you're on the show in hopes of, of obviously being the sole survivor, and you win, I think it's a million bucks. So, I mean, you know, great, I'm going to win a million dollars, but if we take it to the extreme, then what we should see as viewers on TV is every time somebody gets voted off the island, 
they get flown back to their neighborhood here in America where they, you know, get to re-engage and, and, and life as wonderful as it is here. And it starts to whittle away on the island until there is just one person left. One sole individual on the island. And they should fly a plane over and drop the, the million dollars with a note that says, we'll be back in 10 years to see how it's working for you. Alone. That's what happens. Without truth-telling, community is destroyed and we are left isolated and alone. No matter how many people are around us. And yet the gospel through this command calls us from isolation to belonging. From isolation to belonging, which is really something we very deeply crave. When truth-telling flourishes, we become more and more love-neighbor people, love-God people. Community finds life. And this is what the church is supposed to be, a truth-telling community of love-God, love-neighbor people. But how do we become that type of people? Well, that leads to the final question. How can we become truth-tellers? So third question, how do we do it? Two words, realization and transformation. Realization. We must first realize the truth about ourselves. Maybe you've heard it said before that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Okay, now do you actually believe that? Because it is true. You are way worse than you think you are. And you are way worse than the person sitting next to you thinks you are. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. James notes, we all stumble in many ways. The Apostle Paul declares, I have not already obtained glory. I am not yet made perfect. And then the Gospel writer, John, disciple of Jesus, writes in uh, 1 John, and and you heard part of this already this morning in our assurance of pardon, though right now I'm not going to focus on the assurance part. But John writes in 1 John, and I want to point out he's writing to a community of Christians. He's not writing to non-believers, he's writing to believers that he deeply loves. And he writes this, If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim that we have not sinned, that we do not sin, then we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. We must realize the deceit in our hearts, the deceit that comes from our lips, the deceit that is permeating our lives. We must realize that we break the ninth commandment daily as vain, worthless, false idols, uh, false witnesses against our neighbor. Now, one of the many times that I was struggling to get a grip uh, on reality was on the soccer field. Now, some of you have heard me share this story before. Uh, high school varsity soccer team, I was our goalkeeper. It was a tournament game against our Cross City rival. Everybody w was pumped up for this game, ready to go. First half, 0-0. Zero, zero. 
About midway through the first half, and I will never forget, but the one thing that I did not want to happen, happened. All of a sudden, breaking through my defensive line at midfield came Norman Dwart, their star player from Sweden. <laughs> now, if you have ever seen Rocky IV, Ivan Drago, Dolph Lundgren, that's who Norman was. So I've got Ivan Drago coming at me at a full sprint with the ball. Now, I should also point out that Norman that year was the, was the top goal scorer in the state of Georgia. I had actually watched him practice before kicking before a police radar gun, and he could kick the ball upwards of 70 miles per hour. So if you're going home today on Highway 199, Norman's soccer ball is going to pass you, okay? So it's Norman, the ball, an open field, me, and my goal. Needless to say, I was not very excited about the situation. But I had to deal with it, like any goalkeeper is supposed to do. I had to start assessing, at what point am I going to come out of my goal? At what point am I going to come off my line? Because Norman is in a full sprint with the ball, and any moment I'm going to have to take off its full sprint toward him. Now, the hope for any goalkeeper is that you get there just when the ball is slightly out of reach of the striker who's coming forward. Because uh, they're at full sprint, the ball's going to be ahead of them. But Norman's too good for that. So the best that I could hope for that day would be to be diving for the ball at his feet just as he was kicking, just as he was taking the shot, in hopes that it would deflect the ball away from the goal. The moment came, I sprinted out, he was going for the shot, I dove at his feet toward the ball, and everything went dark. And I remember this excruciating pain in my head as I hit the ground. And I remember rolling over, and I opened my eyes, and everything was blue and green and yellow and blurry. And I watched the ball roll past the goal. I had saved the shot. But that's not the point of the story. <laughs> Because, because I was the last one, I, I had saved the shot, I was the last one to touch it, went out of bounds. That means it is now a corner kick. So my defense is now coming to hover around our goal to defend it. Their offense is coming for their scoring opportunity. A guy is taking the ball, setting it up in the corner, and I am struggling to my feet. My head is pounding. I can't see very well. There's this huge clot of dirt over my eye, and I can't get it away, and I'm kind of stumbling back to my goal line, and I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. Just focus, just focus, just focus. And all of a sudden, I realize that nobody on either team is looking at the ball over there. Everybody is looking at me. And then one of their players leans in and says, dude, your eye is messed up. <laughs> and I realized it wasn't a clot of dirt. My head had busted open. A flap of skin was hanging down. There was blood everywhere I couldn't see. And I'm thinking to myself, it, it's okay. We can do this thing. Let's go. <laughs> now, fortunately for me at that moment, there were some other guys on the soccer field that had a better grip of reality than I did. They called the referee over, he took one look, blew his whistle, stopped the play, uh, called in the medical staff, I, I, was, I was taken off the field, uh, taken to the emergency room, got 17 stitches. And you can barely tell, they did a really good job, it's over my left eye, check it out later. 
But, but why? Why do I tell you this story? Besides the fact I want to live my, relive my glory days. Um, <laughs> no, I tell you this story because here was a moment when I was in bad shape. But not only was I in bad shape, it was a moment when I was in great denial. When I thought, I can work through this thing. I can do this on my own. I needed other people to help me recognize that I was in desperate need. I needed other people to take me to the hospital where injured people go to receive care and healing. I needed people to speak truth to me, and I needed to realize that truth. So question for you this morning is, do you realize your need for help? We sang about it earlier. Do you, do you believe the words that you sang, that you need Jesus every moment of every day? Do you realize, because whether you are here this morning as a believer or not, you are bleeding. You have something blocking your vision, and it's the effects of sin. The effects of your own sin, the, uh, the effects of, of sin against you from other people. Now, another question. How do you see the church? What's your view of the church? I mean, you, you got up this morning and, and you came. So what do you think of the church? Well, Dr. Paul Tripp, a counselor, pastor, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, writes this. Many people see the church as a well-designed, well-led, successful organization. But when I look at the church, I see a hospital. A hospital full of people in various stages of dealing with the, sin, with the disease of sin. Now, imagine a doctor coming out of an examining room to say to his receptionist, Sick people, sick people, sick people. All I ever see is sick people. Why don't healthy people ever come here? The church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin. People who are not yet fully formed into the image of Jesus Christ. The church is full of people who have lost their way and many don't even know it. People who haven't made a connection yet between their daily problems and the transforming grace of Christ. Everywhere you look, you will find couples who are struggling to love, parents who are struggling to be patient, children who are attracted to temptation, friends and colleagues who battle the disappointments of imperfect relationships. This is 100% of the church's membership. 100% of the church's membership. That means every single one of you and me, all of us. Dude, you are messed up. You are. But that's not the only news. That's not the only truth. That's the bad news. But there is good news too. The truth of transformation. The truth of the gospel of Jesus. And so Tripp continues. The church is not merely a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center. Where flawed people place their trust in Jesus 
the great physician, where they gather to know and love him better, and where they learn to love others as he is designed, becoming more and more love God, love neighbor people. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. You ever wonder why the church is messy? Because we are sinful, struggling, broken people. But it is God's wonderful mess. And that is the good news that we need to hear. That the church is the place where God radically transforms hearts and lives. Transformation. Because you see, realization is not enough. Insight does not equal change. Some of us have been in counseling before and we know those moments when the counselor touches something deep within and you have the insight. But insight doesn't equal change. We need gospel transformation. So back to 1 John. The assurance side of this passage in 1 John 1 and 2. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we know that we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. For whoever keeps God's word... In him, truly, the love of God is and is being perfected, transformed by truth. And this is the truth about us, and this is the truth about God. The truth about what God does for us and in us and through us. The truth about what God does as we repent, as we believe, as we obey. As we repent, turning from our sin and turning toward God again and again and again. And as we believe, trusting in Christ's finished work for us on the cross and also in his continual work in us through his spirit. As we repent, as we believe, and as we obey Yes, keeping his commandments. Yes, we obey. But not out of our own self-effort. Not hunkering down and pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. No. We obey, but we obey by grace through faith. As one of my seminary professors would put it, the word empowers the obedience it commands. As we become more and more Love God, love neighbor people. The word empowers the very obedience that it commands. Transformed by truth. Where ultimately the truth is a person. The person of Jesus. You see, the truth is, is that we never stop needing Jesus. We always need him, and he always provides for us. 
As we've heard before, Jesus is the one who forgives our disobedience and enables our obedience. He forgives our disobedience. He enables our obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth. This is the gospel. This is good news. And the gospel changes everything. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. Not only am I more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but in Christ I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. We are all sinners, and Jesus is the Savior of sinners. I continue to stumble and fall, and Jesus continues to rescue me. This is the grace and truth that changes lives. This is the truth that is at work in us, at work through us. This is the truth that we need to pursue, that we need to embrace, and that we need to proclaim. As we become more and more truth-tellers to one another and to the broken world around us, this is the gospel that we have been given. Let's hold to it, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And we thank you that you, Jesus, are the truth. That you are the way, the truth, and the life that you have come to set us free. And so would you convince our hearts more and more of this reality? Both the truth of our great and continual need of you and the truth of your great and continual provision for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.